today? Is there an echo in here? Just me? No, there is. Something ringing up here. Well, maybe that'll help you pay attention. I doubt it. Hey, it's good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name's Tom. I'd like to meet you, that is. We're in the last week of a series we've been doing all fall on obstacles to faith. And the intention of this whole series was to try to address some of the things that prevent people from ever meeting Jesus. Ideas they've carried, experiences they've had, things that just stop them, maybe without them even realizing it, stop them from, from stepping into an experience with Jesus or discovering more about who he is. And, and, and so through this fall, we've been looking at a whole variety of them, everything from the trustworthiness of the Bible to uh, religion doing more harm than good to uh, homophobia or huh, what's the other, science and faith. Uh, different obstacles that come up sometimes in our conversations, but if we're really honest, some of us have struggled with these obstacles, or maybe we do. We're at a variety of places in our own spiritual journey, and uh, we, we uh, try to be a community at the Erickson Covenant Church that really invites people who are, who are really wrestling with faith questions or really trying to figure all that stuff out to find a place here, and I know that many of you have. And so you may be struggling with obstacles to faith or your friends and family may be. And so the goal of this series was to help us sort of think more clearly, but also have those better conversations with others. And can I just say here on the last, you know, Sunday of this series, I'd love to know how that's gone for you. You know, I really would. I'd love to know from you if you've been able to have some conversations with friends, with family, about their obstacles of faith, whether or not it's related to topics we've looked at or not. That, that's, that's not really important. But, but have you been able to address some of those obstacles? Have you been able to invite someone to consider who Jesus is? I'd love to hear that. Or maybe you yourself were stuck on something and it was preventing you from, from taking the next step in your spiritual journey and, and maybe for some reason that's been shaken loose for you. I'd love to hear that. So I'm just throwing that out there. I'd love to hear from you. Our goal as a church, our mission as a church is to help people find and follow Jesus. And for this series, it was responding to that challenge that we're given by Peter to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, right? Always be ready. And maybe sometimes we don't feel overly ready, but always be ready to give an answer for the the reason why you hope the way you do and to do that with gentleness and respect. And that's kind of been the, the theme verse of, of this series as we've been exploring these obstacles to faith. And I, I do hope it's been helpful. Today, we kind of saved the biggest obstacle for last. It's one of the most persistent obstacles that comes up when we have a discussion about faith or about God or about Jesus. You have very likely heard an expression of this obstacle. You yourself may have wrestled with it. It goes something like this. Why would I believe in a God who would allow all the kinds of evil and suffering we see continue to persist in the world? Like, why would I even go there? Christians say, and Many of us here today, of course, are Christians. Christians say that God is all-powerful and all-good, but if he really was, 
all-powerful and all-good, then he wouldn't ignore the evil that is ripping us apart. I mean, he'd step in, he'd do something, he'd stop the famine and the, the war and the rape and the disaster and the disease and the abuse. I mean, why wouldn't he step in? Wouldn't you step in? If you had the power to stop it, wouldn't you do it? But he's not doing it. I mean, look around. Evil persists. Evil, evil keeps happening. Women and children are trafficked for sex and wars rip apart nations and families and bombs go off and kids go hungry and love grows cold and hate just seems to march on. Evil wrecks everything. And so this is how this obstacle is expressed. So either God is all good, but he's impotent or God's all powerful and doesn't care. It's one or the other. God's either wringing his hands in distress, you know, looking at what's happening and unable to halt the carnage, or God just kind of, you know, just kind of shrugs his shoulders in ambivalence because he couldn't be bothered to respond. And whatever version of God that is, why would I care about him? Well, that's the obstacle. That, that, that's, I think, a, you know, how we'll hear it in some version, expressed in some way. Have you ever heard anything like that? Or maybe you yourself have felt that, have struggled with that yourself. For those of us who follow Jesus, you may have wondered too, like, why, God? Why? We know you're good. We know you're powerful. How in the world are you letting this stuff go on and keep going on? Aren't you going to do something about it? <laughs> I hope you've asked that question. It's a powerful question. It's a crucial question. It's a core question, actually. And it's a question that becomes an obstacle. It actually prevents people from finding out more about Jesus. Most uh, Christian apologists, uh, apologist is not someone, it's not a Canadian who goes around saying sorry all the time. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a person who, who specializes in, in answering um, questions that come maybe from skeptics or from questioners about the Christian faith, and they, they, they answer these, these things. And so a Christian apologists, sorry, I'm now falling apart up here. Oh, I hate this thing. There we go. Um, Christian apologists, they will tell you that suffering and evil is the most challenging question posed to Christian faith, bar none. All the other questions... I mean, yeah, they're serious, but they're nothing compared to this one. This is the biggie. It's a very serious obstacle to faith. And I want us to feel that. That's something we can just kind of brush over. And nothing I say this morning, you know, in nothing that I say this morning, what I want to suggest that it's something we just sort of, you know, oh, that's a no big deal. It is a big deal. I want us to feel it. Particularly because... I think a lot of time when it's raised by people, even if it sounds like an academic question, if it sounds like something theoretical, it usually isn't. Usually it's raised by someone who's experienced significant difficulty or they've witnessed raw evil. And they wrestle with this question. It's not just a theoretical question. It's a, it's a human cry for meaning, for justice in what can seem like the face of meaningless evil. So how do we answer that? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we do, I want to point something out that's important to remember. 
The persistence of evil and suffering in the world is not simply a hard question for Christians to answer. It's hard for everyone to answer. It's important that you hear this. It's not like Christianity has a particularly difficult time with evil and suffering and everyone else just has an easy answer to give. It's not the case. The fact is, explaining evil and suffering, trying to make sense of it, trying to work through it in a way that is both satisfying and meaningful and and, and logical, in a way that also brings hope and yet is honest, it's difficult for everyone. Because this question sits at the very core of human existence. It sits right where we live because somehow we we know inherently we were created for something more. We had hoped there would be love. We 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 had hoped there'd be goodness and yet there wasn't or there isn't or we wreck things or someone comes in and wrecks it for us. So we look around and we see a world that should be better than it is and isn't. Right at the very core of who we are, we cry out. For meaning and for sense and for justice. It's right there at the core. And so when we talk with friends and family about this obstacle, the question really becomes, well, what's the best answer? Maybe not. Maybe it doesn't answer every single question. Maybe it doesn't make sense all down the line. But, but which one answers it best? Which, which, which answer grapples with the question most honestly? Which one responds with the greatest empathy and, and hope and, and it also resonates with, with what makes sense to us? And I think, practically speaking, which answer helps us fight evil and pursue love in our lives? Like actually do the things that would lead, lead toward life and not, and not death. I think it's when we grapple with these questions that we are able to come to a clearer understanding ourselves of what God is up to, but also help others maybe take a step toward Jesus. Let me press pause there. Before we go on, I want to point out something really practical. Later on, we'll give some practical stuff too. But, you know, whenever the question of evil and suffering comes up, whether it's more of an academic conversation or whether it's thrown out as a theory or whether it comes in a a place of pain and suffering, um, it's a great time whenever that comes up maybe over your holiday meals with friends and family. When it ever comes up, it's a great time to start asking questions of people. I, I don't mean the questions of like, I'm just going to ask this so they ask me and then I nail them. I mean like real genuine like searching questions. Like, how do you understand evil? Like, where do you think it comes from? How, how are you grappling with this? in your own life, from whatever religion or perspective or, you know, wherever they're from, be interested in in finding out because every human is wrestling with this or trying desperately to ignore it. It's all there. So ask the questions. What about justice? How come uh, humans seem to persist in, in doing evil? And ask these questions openly and honestly. Like, get the conversation flowing. And when there's a bit of a lull over the Christmas meal, just throw that one out. We're, we'll have, I think, terrific conversations. If we approach it authentically and vulnerably, terrific conversations with people about, I think, one of the, the most core questions of human existence. And I do think, as we internalize the story and as we, as we are following Jesus, we're, we're able to then bring Jesus into the conversation in a real way. 
as we grapple with evil and suffering. That's just a practical uh, thing. When it comes to evil and suffering, there are lots of different answers given, right? I mean, you and maybe in the coffee shop or around the, around the desks at work or, uh, you know, as you connect with people on, on the farm or in your business or at school, you'll hear a variety of responses. Usually they're given in response to something we've heard in the news or some difficulty that's happened. And you'll hear all the, yes, I know, you'll hear all the cliches and all the ways that people deal with it, but you'll, you'll hear people grapple with it. And I want us to tune our ears to that. Like, how are people actually responding to evil as it comes up? But we also can examine responses made in larger groups. You could say by philosophies or, or, or religions. And, and, and I think it's important also to understand some of that, even as we look a little bit in a moment, of what is the Christian response to evil. You know, Islam will say that everything that happens, happens because it has been predetermined by the express will of God, of Allah. And so to understand suffering from their perspective is to say, inshallah, as they say, it, as Allah wills, that's God's will. It can become very fatalistic. Not that everyone lives like that who's Muslim, but that, that can be their philosophy. Buddhism, on the other hand, sees all suffering as an illusion. It's actually not real. Our problem is we think it's real. And so the real issue is we've got to somehow let go of the things we're holding on to and embrace the true reality, which is that all of this will fade away. So suffering's not real. Move over to Hinduism and suffering is payback. That's what karma is. Karma is the ultimate airtight explanation of evil and suffering. You are getting what you deserve. doesn't matter whether you know it or not. You're getting what you deserve. You did it in some past life. So all the suffering that happens to you out of the blue or anywhere is because of. That's the explanation for evil. When it comes to someone who believes in kind of atheistic materialism, and by that I mean there is no God, no afterlife, we're just higher formed animals, and you know you die like a dog and you're in, you're done. Um, no offense to dogs. Their perspective of suffering would be that suffering is completely neutral and natural. It's just part of life. We may rail against it, but whatever. It's just actually the way the world weeds out the weak. New Age philosophies run a lot of different directions, but tend to be quite similar to Buddhism, except there tends to be a bit more of a self-focus, where we really shouldn't worry too much about evil. Rather, we should focus on our own happiness and our own enlightenment, becoming more spiritually connected and internally peaceful, and believing that somehow that might help respond to evil. There's also economic explanations. Two big ones that have haunted us the last few centuries would be Marxism, which says all suffering is a result of economic inequities, right? And the answer is, of course, revolt. Capitalism gives a different answer. Capitalism says that all suffering is basically due to laziness and incompetence. If we could just deal with that, then we'd all get off better, both answering the question of evil and suffering and how do we address it. Every religion, every philosophy, every man in a coffee shop, <laughs> every, everybody you meet on, a, on, on the street, people you meet in your playgroup, everyone has an answer in some way, giving a diagnosis and a remedy to the problem of evil. And I encourage you to dig into it through conversation with friends. I find it so intriguing to find out how people are answering this question. Sometimes you have to cut through the cliché gently, I think, but sometimes persistently say, really? Is that what you think? Let's talk more about that. I'm fascinated to know 
how you think everything happens for a reason or why you think everything's going to turn out okay. I'd love to hear more about that. But to dig in and, and say, people are trying to grapple with this question. They're trying to figure out how do we make sense of it. Well, what's the Christian response? Now, I got to tell you something. I'm just, have you ever had the experience of working on a big project for the boss? You worked all week on it. And the boss comes in last minute and says, oh, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to do something different. So unfortunately, I had that experience in the middle of the night. So I had a completely different message. <laughs> and the boss walked in, as it were, into my sleep and said, Tom, don't do that. Put it, put it away. Write something different this morning. So early this morning, this whole section now came about. So I, I, I was going to take you through the whole story because I think it's so important that we kind of get the big sweep of things. And I think God was not wanting you to suffer, quite frankly, and, and decided, to, said, Tom, shorten it, simplify it, stop, do, don't do that to your people. Okay, so here it is. I'm going to focus very simply on what I think is the core. And I'm going to suggest that there's a big backdrop to this. That's as far as I'll go. Big backdrop, the whole story of Scripture. But the ultimate answer to evil and suffering is the cross. That's God's answer to evil and suffering. I want to explore four ways, at least, that this is true. The first is that the cross shows us that suffering is real. Now, for many of us, we think, what a dumb statement. Of course, suffering is real. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I know that. But I want to suggest that for some of us, we either have lived life trying to deny it, even if we've experienced it, or we may be forgetting that there are literally millions of people who live each day believing that suffering is not real, even as they experience it. The Bible is very clear that suffering is real. I myself was raised in a very sheltered family. I think I've told you that before. Loved the family I was raised in, loved the community I was raised in. But I've got to tell you, I did not see much that I could have named as evil in my younger years. And I'm thankful for that. I really am. But I was wanting to follow Jesus. And so I spent some time in areas of the world that were pretty poverty stricken and began to see some of that unfold. But for me, it really came to light. And this hit me this week as our oldest son turned 17. That when I was 17, the first few months I was 17, I was in the country of Haiti and was working there and tremendous people there. loved them. Um, saw, of course, some poverty, some terrible poverty, but also wonderful things that were happening. But as I was about two months into that, um, Jean, Jean Bertrand Aristide was overthrown for the first time. He was overthrown again later, but this is the first time he was overthrown. And for a few days in there, I witnessed evil for the first time, like real evil for the first time. I was a kid, and I was traumatized. They were shooting people in the street and burning them alive. It was anarchy, and I was terrified. I have never read Psalm 90, you know, about being protected by God with more fervor in my life. It was a, a defining moment for me. <laughs> this farm kid from northern Alberta who didn't know anything at all saw the terror of evil and the, and the way that affected people's lives that I loved. 
And yeah, I felt unsafe, but I thought about all the people that are trapped in this difficult situation. And reality is, after a month, I went home and they didn't. So for me, being able to look it in the face and call it what it is is crucial. And I believe the, the whole Christian story does exactly that looks evil straight in the face and acknowledges it for what it is. The whole story of the Bible is riddled with evil stories. Sometimes we struggle with that. Like, why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? Do you know why there's so much violence in the Old Testament? Because we are evil. We do bad things to each other. And the Bible speaks very honestly and openly, vividly about the way that we choose to use our freedom to harm others rather than help them. The Bible also acknowledges the presence of evil beings, demons, and Satan that seeks to destroy others, although always with our participation and permission. The cross of Jesus Christ allows us to look at suffering and say, it's real. We don't deny it. With eyes wide open, we acknowledge that suffering and evil are real. Second, the cross shows us that suffering and evil have been answered by God in Christ. It is amazing to realize as the story of Scripture unfolds that God who created the world does not ignore the world's plight. Early in the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, God hears the groaning of his people. They were groaning in their slavery. And they were crying out. And what I love about about that story is it doesn't even say they were crying out to God. It just says they were crying out. And God hears their groaning and responds to them. And that's the story of Scripture, but that's the story of history, that God hears our groaning and he responds, that God doesn't overlook the suffering and the evil and the sin, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. And then the next verse, I love it just as much, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world could be saved through him. This is the heart of God. And he answered evil and suffering through the cross. Whenever we wrestle with that question of God, what are you doing? We have to remember what God has done. We have to remember that God has definitively answered evil and suffering by sending his son Jesus to turn over evil, to begin to work his new creation. He's done it. We'll come to it in a minute. There's mystery in how it's unfolding, but he has done the definitive thing to respond to evil and suffering. We look forward and hope to when that will be. But he has answered it. And as Christians, we are able to face reality in truth, both that it is real and that God has answered it. The third thing the cross shows us is that God can use suffering and evil for his purposes. Now, this can be tricky because sometimes we can get muddled in our thinking. And we'll hear it sometimes from friends and and from Christians as though evil is somehow God's idea. It's not God's idea. Evil and suffering and sin and brokenness, the things that tear people apart, the things that destroy your life and mine, were not God's idea. He didn't author them. He didn't authorize them. 
He didn't think they were ever something he wanted to work with. But the amazing story of Scripture and the amazing story of our own lives is that God can still use the things that were against him and against us, the things that destroy, to actually turn them for good. Not because God loves evil and decided that was a good idea, but because God loves us and is able to somehow work mysteriously, miraculously, in ways that we can't even fully grasp, able to use them to show his power and his grace. And the cross is the perfect example of that. The greatest act of evil in human history, God used that act to bring about the greatest salvation for all. I mean, if anything should remind us that God can take evil and suffering and turn it for good, it's the cross. He's able to do that in these huge, cosmic, world-transforming ways, and he's able to do it in our lives too. God's like the ultimate found artist. You know those artists who go around and use junk and make amazing works of art? That's God. He's like the ultimate upcycler. Yeah. Or composter. That's my favorite. God can take your pile, and he can make amazing stuff. He can make it grow. That's God. He's committed to taking the things, the brokenness, the mistakes even that we've made, the wrong paths we've taken, and use them for our good. I mean, you've got to think, and I know some of you have talked about this in the Timothy Project, talked about this in other places. I mean, just think of the times in your life when you've really grown in faith. Times when you really have come to a new understanding that God is faithful. Times when you really finally grasp that Jesus is the one who can actually bring a change in a situation. Let me ask you, has that ever come when everything's been great? Ever? No. It comes when things are tough. It comes when you're facing the impossible. It comes when you are not sure you're going to live another day. You're not sure if this is ever going to work. You're not sure if this is ever going to come about in a good way. And you are facing it and you're realizing, oh my goodness, God, if you don't do something, we're all screwed. And God does something. He moves. He shapes. He moves us. He works in us. We come to this whole new understanding of his love and his grace and his power through what are often difficult circumstances, sometimes even a result of our own sin. I mean, that's, what, that's what's amazing about God's grace. He can take our own rebellion and use it for our good. Wow! There is a mystery in here, and I don't confess to understand all of it. But what I do know is God can do the impossible. This is what causes Paul in Romans 8, that whole beautiful chapter. In Romans 8, Paul says, in light of all the things we've been talking about, there's amazing stuff going on there. We should preach a whole series on that chapter another day. He says, the present sufferings I'm experiencing cannot be compared to the glory God is going to reveal in us. I consider the present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, Romans 8, 18. It doesn't mean Paul, I mean, he suffered. He knew what suffering looked like. But compared to what God is going to do, what God is doing through us, through his church in the world, man, you can't even put them on the same register. They cannot be compared. Which leads him a little later, in light of this hope, in light of this comparison, just a few verses later, 10 verses later, to say that famous verse we love to quote from Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that all things, 
all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It does not say all things are good. It doesn't say that. Because they aren't. Things are bad. There's evil things done, sinful things, rebellious things, hurtful things. But somehow God in his grace and his power is able to work all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't sugarcoat evil, but it gives us hope in the face of it. God can use it. Sometimes we don't know how, but he can And then fourth, the cross shows us that suffering and evil will not last. Will not last. And that's the hope that we have. Because if we're really honest, we talk a lot about, and we do, and we rightfully hold up the truth that Jesus defeated evil on the cross. And yet, that was a lot of years ago. And last time I checked, there's been a whole bunch of evil done since then. Historically, and in my meager years of life, and I've somehow been part of it, hurting others, neglecting, betraying, rebelling. When we're honest, we struggle with this question like, okay, Jesus, so you defeated evil on the cross. Why does it continue to persist then? Alpha, on the Alpha course, they use a great illustration. Maybe you've heard it before. They use the illustration from World War II. On June 6, 1944, the decisive battle was fought in World War II, D-Day. And on that day, we knew who'd won the war. And yet, it was almost a full year later, before what is called VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day, May 8, 1945. And between D-Day, when the battle was ultimately won, and VE Day, 11 months later, a lot of lives were still lost. Tremendous loss. Tremendous destruction. Between D-Day and VE Day. And the illustration that Nikki uses is that, that somehow we can see that in what Jesus has done on the cross, we see D-Day occur. The decisive battle has been won. Jesus has overcome evil and suffering through his sacrificial death, and he rose again from the dead. The battle is won. The war is won. And yet, there is still fighting going on. There are still battles being waged. There are still lives being lost. There are still people being hurt. And we live in between D-Day on the cross and V-E Day, what I like to call Victory on Earth Day, um, when Jesus returns and finally makes it all right. We live in between this time where new creation is coming, where lives are being transformed, where we are in a battle for the souls and the lives of men and women and children, where we are fighting the forces of evil, not with weapons, but with love, with the same sacrificial love that Jesus displayed on the cross. This is how we're fighting evil. And we live in between this time, both letting the Holy Spirit transform our lives and through us sharing love and grace and light and freedom everywhere Jesus sends us looking forward to the day when there will be ultimate victory. Looking forward to the day we read and hear about at the end of the Revelation, 
Let me remind you what it says there. Revelation 21, the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. All these things are gone forever. Can you say that with me? All these things are gone forever. One more time. All these things are gone forever. Think about it. War, famine, disease, abuse, neglect. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. That's hope. That's what we declare when we look at the cross and say, Jesus defeated evil and suffering. And will we live in between the time when there was D-Day and V-E Day? And even though that we are still waging a battle, we know who's won the war. It's been decisively decided already on D-Day, on the cross. Well, let me get practical here as we finish. How do we take this story and actually help others? In some ways, you're going to hear lots of repeat today because I think as we help people around obstacles, whatever those obstacles are, we often have a very similar stance. And so let me go through at least six things I think we can do to help. The first one you've heard repeated many times through the series, and that is that we start by listening carefully. We've got to remember that this obstacle But all these obstacles we've talked about are often connected to personal pain. And if we ignore that, if we run rough over that, or we don't hear that, then I don't think we're able to help people really move around the obstacle that prevents them from meeting Jesus. We've got to listen. I hope you've been hearing that clearly through this whole series, that if we're going to actually help people around their obstacles of faith, if we're actually going to tell them about Jesus, we've got to become great at listening. Listen carefully. Second, and following on listening, ask questions. Ask them for real. Ask them because you want to know them. You want to understand more how your friends, your family, really grapple with these things that are going on, maybe with the question of evil and suffering. But ask questions about how people are responding to both sort of global and broad you know, systems of injustice or racial strife or, or global terrorism, like how they're responding to that, but also how they're grappling with, with personal evil and things that are wrecking their personal lives and addictions and, and, and things that are in their families and maybe friends are experiencing. How are they grappling with things? Ask them gently and respectfully. Not, again, because you just want to look for the opportunity to jam Jesus in but because you want to know, because this is a core question, because you love them. And how they respond to that actually helps you love them more. So we, we listen, we ask. And then third, make it personal. Confess. The way I like to think of it is we take personal responsibility for sin. 
Like when we talk about these big sweeping things that have gone wrong in the world, we actually trace it back to ourselves. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you may have heard this quote before, the great Russian novelist who took issue with several things within the USSR and paid for it dearly, said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We take personal responsibility for sin and for brokenness. The brokenness we perpetrated personally, but also more broadly. Like when we see, when we see things breaking down, we acknowledge that we've got a part to play in that. That, that I can see in, in this thing that's going on where there's, when there's a lack of reconciliation between ethnicities or there's, there's some kind of prejudice going on or there's, there's hatred. Being, you realize, yeah, there's, I can see where that lies in me and I confess that. That's why as Christians we make the confession of sin a regular part of our practice and we'll even be doing that this morning during communion. Fourth, I challenge you to continue to internalize the story of the cross. I say internalize because the cross of Jesus Christ stands at the very center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But it is easy for us to forget that. Astonishingly, it is easy for us to somehow forget that at the very center is the cross. The very center of our thinking, the very center of our practice, the very center of the way we explain who Jesus is and live out his life in our relationships. The very center is the cross. And so we need to internalize the story of the cross, to stay in the Gospels, to never forget that the decisive answer to evil and suffering, but the decisive answer God has given to the whole of the world is in the cross. So internalize that story. Take it in. Fifth, whenever you have the opportunity, not jamming Jesus in, but point to Jesus. Point to him personally. Say, this is, how I've, this is how I'm grappling with it. Like this is, this is the hope that I have. I'm not saying it answers every question or it ties everything up in a neat bow, but, but this is how I'm grappling with evil and suffering as I'm experiencing it, as I'm seeing it. Point to Jesus because ultimately he is God's answer to evil. And then sixth, take the fight to evil. We need to take the fight to evil. The problem of evil is not theoretical. It's practical. And Jesus calls us to be people who overcome evil with what? Good, not evil. He calls us to be people who follow him in life, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him where we are loving those who don't love us back, where we're serving those who would spit in our face, where we demonstrate his sacrificial love in our actions, in our thinking, in our prayers, where it permeates who we are. And we realize that Jesus has called us to fight evil, not with the weapons that everyone wants to put in our hands, but with the weapon of the Spirit and the Word of God through a cruciform life of service and sacrifice. We fight evil through love. We fight evil the way that Jesus has called us to fight it. And ultimately today that leads us to communion. Isn't it appropriate that on this day, when we are thinking about the cross at the center of God's response to evil and suffering, that we would go to the table. Because this is the place where we are able to most vividly internalize the story of the cross. 
We eat this bread and we drink this cup and we take in this story and we take in this hope and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim D-Day until V-E-Day. So I'm going to invite Dana to come. and We're going to offer today um, an invitation into communion. We're using um, a simplified and adapted version from the Covenant Prayer Book.